Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shobna Xavier, and I hope you're staying well and safe wherever you are. And thank you so much for joining us today. In today's episode, we are joined by Jamila Rodriguez, who is a researcher at the Okanagawa Institute for Science and Technology in Japan, to discuss her new book, Sufi Women, Embodiment and the Self, Gender and Islamic Ritual, which is published by Rutledge in 2023. Rodriguez uses her dance and performance studies background and training to study women's hadra, a particular form of zikr practiced by Nakshbandi Sufi community in Cape Town, South Africa. This ritual includes engagement with sacred texts resulting in litanies or recitations of kasidas with music and bodily movement, all with the aim of reaching or achieving union with Allah or the divine. This focused case study on women's bodily movement during zikr and women's understanding of these movements in relation to their mind and soul is a fascinating exploration of embodiment via ritual and performance study and also explores what all of this means to the woman's understanding of sense of self. Rodriguez also uses autoethnography to situate some of this discussion. The book will be of interest to anthropologists, Sufi study scholars, and especially performance studies scholars. In our conversation today, Jamila and I discuss challenges of conducting fieldwork as women and the negotiations it entails, some of the paradoxes of theoretical approaches to embodiment and annihilation from both the Sufi and performance studies perspective, and much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jamila Rodriguez about her book, Sufi Women, Embodiment and the Self, Gender in Islamic Ritual. Hi, Jamila. Thank you so much for joining uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work. Um, We have a tradition on the podcast to learn a little bit about the author and our guests. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your intellectual or academic journey and what led you to working on this particular project and writing this particular book. Yeah, so um, I actually have a kind of a hybrid background. So I started as as a professional dancer. Mm-hmm. So, and then I I went into dance studies, um, most specifically into culture and dance. So I was interested in how people perform dance practices as manif- manifestations of their cultural identity. So I, from that um, curiosity, I started to look more into ritual practices. So I really wanted to explore how people connect to divine entities, God, ancestors, you know, you name it, through their bodies via ritual practices. So back in 2007, I was actually in Brazil and I studied a little bit of uh, Afro-Brazilian ritual practices called candomblé. 
Um, then after that, you know, I finished my undergraduate and I worked as a professional dancer with a dance theater company from South Africa. And then I got really interested in um, South African ritual practices. And that's what led me uh, then to get a scholarship and move into South Africa. Um, from that experience, <laughs> I also got in touch with um, the Muslim community in South Africa. And then I thought to myself, well, what if I actually do something with the Muslim community in South Africa? You know, and then I moved again from um, a kind of like dance performance studies into a more ritual practice, Islamic studies context. During that time, I also had a car accident, which kind of changed my life dramatically. So that was partly a little bit of what led me into this journey of Sufism. Um, two things. First of all, was partly influenced by my mother ancestry uh, from Morocco, but I am Portuguese. So it was kind of like um, the sense that all these Morocco ancestry was fading away from uh, our family and was pretty much, you know, we were embedded in a Portuguese society. I don't speak Arab, for example, but I speak French. Um, and also Portugal is a very Catholic country. So in a sense, I think part of me was trying to recover a part of my cultural identity and something that I was probably kind of denied to me as I was growing up. But also when I had the car accident, um, I had to stop dancing. So um, I was in a wheelchair and a lot of things happening to my body. And I think in that particular moment, part of my selfhood has changed, right? So you have a sense of self and a sense of who you are that it's completely lost. And then when I was trying to recover and make sense of this, um, and make sense of the changes of my body and, and who I was. I also understood that there was a sort of part of emotional and spiritual side of me that needed to reconnect somehow. And then when I was, you know, on the quest of searching the self, <laughs> you know, I stumbled with Sufism and Sufi practice. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about the ideas of the self within Sufism and the ideas of the body and the ideas of connecting with Allah through their bodies. Um, so I think my idea of um, dance and body movement has changed because of this personal experience and because of the things, you know, that I learned through my years of, of studying and when I got into Sufism and studying Sufism, there was no dervishes in South Africa, at least that I was aware of. So in that sense, and I will talk a little bit more later on, my supervisor at the time, Sadish Haik, she was wonderful to me. And she told me, well, if you are really wanting to work on body movement, why don't you try Zikr, Hadra? So I thought, wow, okay, well, let's see what this Hadra is about. So you know, in that space, while I was learning and understanding what Hadra was about, I understood there was a kind of like dialogue of space and rhythm and spirituality and 
body awareness, religious identity. So kind of like all these features that somehow I was also trying to find within myself. So, you know, the personal is always political, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And I thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it provides such an important context to the genealogy of the book, because so many of the questions that you were grappling with personally are also the questions that really come up throughout the book. And some of your interlocutors were also raising in terms of their body, the relationship to the soul. And I think coming from a dance background, you're able to get at this in a very important uh, way and a different angle that I think sometimes different from religious studies or other other disciplines. What would you um, say your methodology was? I know in your book, you talk a little bit about that it is um, ethnographic. Some of it is autoethnographic. So what was that process like? Um, Were there challenges? Were there um, kind of surprising moments that you were like really happy about? So obviously, because I come from a dance background and within my dance background, I used and I still, you know, still do to a certain extent, something called contact improvisation, which is a little bit more like a self-exploratory movement with no set rules. Um, And it's literally like contact improvisation classes are kind of like labs, you know, exploratory laps of your body. So I thought, well, because I'm a dancer, there's no way I can talk about a ritual practice without experiencing that ritual myself. That was like the the the, the number one, you know, idea. Cannot do this. I cannot speak about Hadra, at least for me as a dancer. And I cannot speak about the movement of the body within this ritual without experimenting the ritual. So I set myself into this ethnographic um, journey. So two aspects. So the first, I needed to find the community, right? And obviously I lived in South Africa and I um, was pretty much into, you know, the South African society and my group of, of friends and community and network. And I do knew some Muslim communities, but I wasn't aware of, you know, who was doing Hadra. So... At Cape Town University, when I was doing my um, uh, postgraduate studies in sociology of Islam and um, Islamic feminism, my supervisor at the time, Sadish Haik, she told me, well, there's this group, the Bandi group, and you might want to go and talk to them and see if they are open to receive you. And she knew a lady, and this lady was quite an influential lady. She ran a bookshop in Cape Town and a lot of people knew her. So she said, go and talk to this lady and see, you know, if she, if she would like to introduce her to the group. So I was quite nervous at the time because, you know, like, hello, I'm Jamila and, you know, I want to go and do Hadra with you for the next three years of my life. I didn't know how to do and how to say, but she was wonderful to me. She was really, really wonderful to me, very open. Um, Interesting, she never wanted to do a formal interview. So because maybe she had a kind of like leading position in the group, she always facilitated everything for me. And we always had a lot of informal conversations, but she actually never wanted to sit down and have um, in-depth conversation. And I respect that. And, you know, there are different actors in ethnography work. And I think her role was kind of like facilitating the process. 
So she was wonderful and she put me in touch with the group. Um, and next thing I know, you know, Monday night, here I am going to Hadra. And here I am, you know, helping uh, getting to know women, helping, you know, preparing the house or with the food, um, babysitting kids, you know, you do anything to get access to the community and to gain people's trust. And I felt, you know, there were moments where I really share intimate aspects also about my life and, you know, the participants' life. So, you know, the personal and the political get together in, in these sort of like, you know, ethnographic works. So I've conducted um, 20 plus interviews with women. They lasted sometimes an hour, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Uh, but those were kind of like formal interviews. But throughout the entire process, I always stopped, you know, any moment that I could, I always would talk to them about Hadra and about other aspects of Sufism. But I didn't just talk to women. I also talked to men. Because I wanted to understand um, gender-wise if men would experience Hadra differently. And I think that point is important. It's important to understand, you know, the gendered body and how different bodies perceive ritual practices. And I even thought about doing some, you know, in the future, some sort of like comparison between, you know, the male body and the female body. So you might ask me then, why did you choose to do with women, right? Well, the answer is very obvious. In Hadra, men and women are separated. So I was not able to join the male group and, you know, be with them. So that was like the number one reason uh, why I chose to do that. Then the ethnographic process was literally myself doing Hadra every single time. And as a dancer trying to experiment in my body, I used to also sometimes just go and observe and don't do so that I could really explore the body movement and write down. So I used to write down, you know, um, dance notes of how the body movement was moving. And then I used to sometimes ask them straight after the ritual, how do they feel or before the ritual? Um, and then other days I would do the ritual. And then as soon as it finishes, I would just vanish home and write, you know, write about, okay, how did I feel that day? What, what happened to me? You know, and then I started to find, ah, there were comparisons. There were things that these women were saying to me that were beyond the theological aspect. There were things that I felt. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, just hearing you talk about it and the, I think it's one of the things I really appreciated about the book is that because it centers women's experiences, um, it, it also means that you're talking about women's bodies and we often don't talk about women's bodies in particular contexts in some religious traditions, right? So here in this book, it's like one of the, the main things that you're doing. Um, and I really resonated with your comment about, well, you you write about women because in sometimes ritual spaces are segregated. And if you're a female identifying woman, then that's the only space that you could write about, right? Um, and I relate to that a lot because I do ethnography too. And sometimes I end up writing only about women because that's the only space I have access to. And that's the only ritual that I could properly document, right? Um, so that's really fascinating. Yeah. So I think, you know, potentially that can be also, you know, 
a problem for us female ethnographers or female researchers that we end up talking about women, not just because we want to talk about women, because that is the access point that we have, right? right. So I wonder, you know, if um, other male ethnographers could actually do a work on the male body. I think, you know, one of the options that we might have is, like I said, you know, interviewing men after the rituals or even if they are willing to talk, right? right. So that's another aspect. But I actually forgot to tell you something. When I was in Cape Town doing this um, work, I realized how important for the women and for Sufi community, men and women in general, was to access to the Sheikh. So mm -hmm. the Sheikh was really, really, really important. And the Sheikh became this embodiment of what Sufism was mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. So in conversations with Sadia, she told me, I think you should go to Cyprus. Yeah. And I thought, okay, here I go. <laughs> so extra field work. Yeah. Um, and then this was actually, sorry, when I was, um, actually, I need to tell you that after I've done the the, um, the postgraduate and when I started to do my PhD in Rwandan University. So yeah. that's when my real PhD began. Yeah. So during my PhD, already advised by my previous supervisor, I went to Cyprus. Okay. So that's the, the correct story. So when I was in Cyprus, um, they asked me, so the first thing that they, they thought was I was there to marry. So that was like a big challenge for me. Yes. Right. Because, you know, I was Jamila with this face, right. alone, single, yeah. and I'm sure that you might have the same situation. So the first thing they said, oh, you know, come to the Derga and we will present you to the women. And um, there's some, you know, uh, young males here. Yeah. that you can, you know, marry instantly, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> so they had an eye for this Egyptian guy, and I just thought, oh, no, oh, how am I going to do this? You know, I'm not here to get married uh, to this, you know, young, very friendly Egyptian man. Um, I'm here to do my research. <laughs> so I accessed them. Um, not the, the the wife of the sheikh, but women that were very close to the wife of the sheikh, because, you know, in every religious system, there's hierarchies, as you know. There yeah. are people that you can talk directly and people that you cannot talk directly. So religion, religion is this very uh, interesting infrastructure where there are these invisible um, layers of hierarchy. Right. You know, even though we are there, you know, to adore the same thing or we are there with the same purpose, mm -hmm. there's always levels of hierarchy. So mm -hmm. I could not just access, you know, the wife of the sheikh. So I accessed someone who was close to the wife of the sheikh and I explained, listen, I'm here to do my research. I'm an anthropologist. I do this, that and the other. And I think she understood because more people came to study with the National Valley, so I wasn't the first one. And that kind of aspect, okay, just fades off. You know, yeah. they just let me carry on and do my work and not obsessed about me getting married. So, you know, then I I did Hadra with them uh, at Cyprus. I also interviewed some women there. And I thought that was really interesting because there was a lot of, also communities from Canada and Russia and Uzbekistan and South America. And there was like, you know, this whole international and a lot of French women as well that converted to. So 
it was really interesting because they wouldn't say I converted to Islam. They would say I converted to Sufism. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, brings about, for me, this sort of like, is Sufism a so-called new spiritualism movement? Right. That Europeans, you know, are desperately trying to grasp. And they didn't identify themselves as I converted to Islam. It was very clear. She said, I converted to Sufism. Right. Right. So that was like, you know, I had that in the back of my mind, but I thought, okay, I can't go there now because I have to focus on something else. But that was a really interesting remark Mm -hmm. of how Sufism and perceptions of Sufism were interpreted by women differently. Mm -hmm. You know, the cultural idea, ideas of what Sufism should be and what it means for for women. So that was, uh, you know, another third part of my fieldwork research. I just, yeah, wanted to add that. Yeah, I wondered about the Cyprus part because uh, South African contacts does take up most of the book, but there are some, there's an earlier section in the book where you do mention that you went to Cyprus and there is a connection of the Nakshmandi community globally. And I think their their headquarters or main base is in Cyprus. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, um, that's correct. But they also quite big in Canada, I yeah. think. And they yeah. are also quite big in the UK. And I also, well, you know, because my PhD was at Roehampton University in London. Mm-hmm. So I did go to the UK community there as well. Um, but I had the sort of same similar um, attitude that I had from Cyprus, young female researcher. Uh, you know, trying to get married. So, you know, it was again the same thing. And uh, it's just, it, it gets complicated, this role of being female and single and, you know. Yeah. So it was not in South Africa. In South Africa, you know, I didn't have that, actually. Yeah. Probably because people knew me. Right. And they knew that I was a dancer. Right, right. You know, so, yeah, and I lived there for so many years. So I think there was a different understanding. As opposed to people who didn't know me in the UK or didn't know me in Cyprus. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an important issue that we don't talk about in terms of different gendered experiences of research and the struggles, as you say, that um, some women experience when they go into field work and show up alone and the interpretations that happen and what parts of yourself at times you feel you have to bend for access to, to knowledge and what's the, the line, like what what is like the, your ethical responsibility, but, you know, there's also safety concerns and all of this different stuff, right? Um and, and it's not easy at all. So I complete a lot of what you're talking about really resonates. And I think there's sometimes um, when you're seen as a newcomer or a foreigner to some of these spaces and, you know, sometimes Sufi communities, I have had similar experiences where they do think that um, there is another agenda, you know, and so it's hard to really say, no, I'm here for research. I'm writing a book or I'm writing this. Um, and it takes a while to figure out how to for people to get it because it's not so much about you but it's about reception of you right and sometimes it just doesn't work and you're like this is not the space for me yeah but you know I think you said a really important thing there and I think in academia and now let's just talk a little bit about education when young female researchers especially in religious studies are going to conduct field work I think they should know about these experiences. We should be able to share with the young researchers because I had to learn for myself. Right. My supervisors didn't tell me that this was going to happen. 
Yeah. You know, and so I think this is important. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to speak about these issues. It's important for young researchers to know it might happen yeah. and what to do when this happens. Right, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree with you. I think it's so important. I'm really glad that we're talking about it and on this platform as well. Um, so I want to think a little bit about the theory work that you do in the book. Um, and you're coming, what I love is that I you're coming from dance anthropology. Um, you're really looking at embodiment. Um, and you introduced something called somatic studies. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so can you say a little bit about maybe like, so we have the case study, which is you're focusing on, you know, these uh, women in a Sufi community um, and Hadra practices or Zikr practices. And we'll get back to what that looks like for this community. Um, but you also have these broader questions of the body embodiment. Um, and you're using really um, your lens as a, a dancer coming from a you know dance anthropological background to frame some of it. So what is and I think somatic studies is one of the things that you do as a thread throughout the book as like an approach um so can you say a little bit more about that perhaps to people who sure. don't know anything about it yeah so i think the somatic studies are you know basically soma is body and mind relationship and it started with thomas Hanna um in the 70s i think where he developed this you know kind of like therape therapeutic approach of relation to body and mind so our body and mind are not separate entities and our being in the world and these you know i'm quoting another anthropologist thomas shortest who did a lot of work as well in religion and ritual practices to say that our beings in the world are uh, cultural manifestations of our bodies as well and um, i wanted to understand how Hadra could be a platform for somatic practice. So I wanted to understand how Hadra can actually serve as a body and mind relationship, the place where women access the in-between, you know, this um, space where they're really connecting of um, letting go of thoughts and just being in their bodies. And a lot of somatic practices are now transforming to body therapies. So, you know, you have a lot of therapists that right now using the sense of touch. So you get, get of this sensorial experience to access trauma and to release trauma, for example. Um, so in uh, and, and dance um, classes, you can also do that where you have um, visual exercises where you're just in a quiet space on the floor or with a partner and you have and and the the um, the leader you know the dance teacher or the practitioner takes you into kind of some visual meditation for example and you experience that visual exercise through your body and you let that visual exercise influence the way your body is moving or paying attention to those kind of like particular moments or paying attention to um awareness of where your body is in terms of space or time or in relation to other people or in relation to your emotions to your feelings so it's literally kind of like self-awareness but self-awareness that is not rationalized it's a self-awareness that it's being lived in that present moment so i wanted to understand again how this hadra could serve the same way as 
my dance studio serves to me. I didn't, I didn't see a ritual practice as just a religious platform. Any ritual can be the place where we can access ourselves within ourselves. And I thought Hadra is giving the opportunity to these women to connect to themselves, not just connecting to Allah, but I think by connecting to God, they are connecting to themselves. But this was an hypothesis, right? So because it was an hypothesis, I had to test my research question, which is, you know, what notions of selfhood are embodied and expressed through the performance of other rituals and why Sufi women choose to do this. So that was really important to me. Why are you choosing to come to Hadra? What is Hadra doing for you? There are other forms of more, you know, mainstream Islam is not doing for you. So that's where the, you know, auto-ethnographic aspect comes because I wanted to understand through my body if there was indeed a sort of like somatic processes happening. And I think in the book, I do speak, you know, when we go into the, the, the experience, and women start thinking, well, you know, I feel much better in my body when I finish Hadra. Or Hadra is about mm, sweating things off. They used to say, you know, this is a space for letting go. So that is telling me something very powerful about these rituals, right? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this really comes out, I think, in uh, chapter six and chapter seven, the last two chapters of the book, where you do have your, um, the interlocutors really, um, their quotes. Um, and it was really fascinating because, and I think you also signaled to it, because it, when you're discussing it, you've divided it up into the beginning, middle, and the final, like kind of the climax of the ritual. Um, and there's like this interesting tension of the body in Sufism, which you also highlight, right? Especially in the final portion of, let's say, Zikr or, you know, Hadra that's happening for the Nikshbandi community here in Cape Town, is that Fana is supposed to be like negation. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I right. knew we were going to say that. <laughs> but, yeah. just, but I don't know. Now I'm like, well, I don't know, right? And so this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Like, yeah. so... I mean, your participants and you obviously are saying that, but you're not also, there. it's like a complicated situation here, right? It's very paradoxical. Yeah, that's what I say. So yeah. the family is a really interesting moment for me. Mm. I think that was like the most fascinating for me. And I mean, it's quite, quite a lot of years ago, so I have to like fresh my memory. Um, but... The interesting paradox here is that they annihilate the self through the self. Right. 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 Yeah. So I annihilate my body through my body. Right. right. Because, and this was the interesting moment, because when women take time to reflect in what they experience, they knew how to tell me how they get out of the body. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is really the key point here is when I asked them, but how do you feel fana? And how do you know that it's reaching there? Mm -hmm. And what do you feel when you come back? Mm -hmm. And through this coming out and coming back, yeah. it's there. So mm -hmm. it's like ideas of, it's a black hole, I feel nothing. But this feeling nothing is feeling something, right? Because you are feeling nothing. 
or there's this like overwhelming feeling or uh, you know one of the participants and I'll never forget this I think I put it in a book that she said to me well how, how am I supposed to tell you this you need to experience yourself right. 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 so you know they knew that annihilation through the self it's something that is so intimate that mm -hmm. some women didn't know how to explain right. others interesting also said to me oh I didn't reach that level yet I'm always in my body so how do you know that you didn't reach that level yet <laughs> yeah. because I'm in control so if and and I had I had an interesting she was quite young woman at the time and she said well no I'm still too weak so they, uh, you know, had the connection of being weak means I still feel my body because I still feel my body and I don't see what the other murids are doing. You know, the other murids are already, you know, out there, <laughs> but I'm not out there. So because I'm not out there and I have control in my body, I still didn't reach the ultimate goal, which is, you know, going to my Lord, going to my you know, to Allah, being with with Muhammad, I still didn't reach there. Other women had these beautiful visions where they sit down, you know, in the lap of Muhammad and they talk to Muhammad and, you know, they, they hug him and they dance with him. And, you know, they had all these kind of like visual aspects of Hadra mm -hmm. and they would then return. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the returning is always a very tiring process. Very, very tiring. They're tired. They don't want to talk. They exhaust. They're sweating. They sweat it out. Right. right? So they, 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 some women say to me, well, how is about sweating everything out? It's about letting go. It's like detoxing yourself. Mm. So it's really the moment where you are very intimate with yourself. Mm. But this stimulus for these things to happen it's not just about, well, here I am with my, you know, hand, arms up and down and, you know, uh, reciting the kasidas. It's also about the symbolism of what these hadra means and the intention. I think hadra is also about intentionality, the intention that we set ourselves to do it. And I think, you know, they embody this symbolism. They embody this... Um, profound love they embody the words that they are saying mm -hmm. and i think by repeating the name of god by the repetition repetition is so important and ritual is about repetition so i think that state of losing the self through the self it has a lot to do with repetition of the movement and when you repeat the movement you kind of don't think about the movement anymore you know you kind of just it's like swimming Right, you don't think I am swimming, you just swim, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes like habitual almost, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating. One of I remember, I don't know if it was in chapter six or not, um, but in um, there was one instance where you one of your interlocutors was talking about like choosing not to hold hands sometimes during Hadra as well and what that meant and it seemed at the time when I was reading it like just a simple gesture I was like oh like I've been to Sufi, Sufi zikrs where sometimes people hold hands and sometimes they don't or they interlock and you know they do in circles you know some Rafai communities have more movement when they're moving 
So it was just really fascinating, even that decision to hold or not hold as kind of part of the process of what they're doing really kind of also individualizes the movement as opposed to a collective movement. But sometimes I think part of it is, and not all Sufi communities will agree, but part of it is, is communal too, right? So there was like this, I know there was like persisting tensions that I kept noticing, but they were important paradoxes because they were meaningful. Like they weren't, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so that, that like yourself, when you're saying that certain things stuck out for you, that I like, I thought a lot about deciding to hold hands or not. <laughs> but I don't know but, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does totally make sense. And you know, because I even had uh, one, and now, now you just reminded me of old memories. This is so funny. Well, again, and I think it was more the young, you know, the young ladies. Once she said to me, oh, no, no, no. When I see Moody such and such and such, I don't be next to her because she's very fast. <laughs> <laughs> right, so right. It's really interesting, right? You already know the body. We already know our bodies and we know the other person's bodies. Right. So within the ritual, our bodies have knowledge, right? My body is telling me, I don't want to be close to God next to such and such. Not because I don't like it. It's just because she goes too fast. She, you know, she didn't say, in a, I don't like that person. Right. She just said it in a very funny way. Like, oh, no, she goes too fast for me. Yeah, yeah. So, which means that our connection with God is at our own pace. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are our own pace right, right. Yeah. so we are all there for Allah I think someone said that you know we all hear Hadra is about paying respects to Prophet Muhammad and is being there for Allah but I think within this process of being there for the entity it's also about respecting my own pace and body and boundaries mm -hmm. whereby I don't want to hold hands because I am here as a group, but I'm also here as an individual, which then brings about this selfhood expression, right? And his religious identity and agency. Right. You know, one of the things that, you know, a lot of Islamic feminists try to um, bring the message and the awareness is that Islam and religion can be a space for agency. Okay. For in some cases, right? In other cases, it's not. But in some particular societies, religion can be in all the work of, of Mah uh, Mahmoud and other scholars are all about it, you know, religious as pious identity, agency. So I also wanted to bring that aspect of Hadra, right. that that ritual is a place of agency. Women choose, at least the women in South Africa, in London and Cyprus, these Muslim women, they choose to do this, and this means something to them because they're getting something out of it. Right. Yeah. And, and that, I think that's really important. I completely agree. And I think it's one of the things I, it's an important contribution of your scholarship in your book. And one of the things I was thinking a lot about as well, because I think also in Sufism, Sufi women have this like really interesting representation. Sometimes they are we historically we tend not to see a lot of um their stories written down but sometimes when we do see their stories written down their gender is kind of like presented in an ambiguous way or people don't want to talk about Sufi women as women right and so it's, it was interesting reading a book that focused so much on embodiment as to 
highlight the fact that Sufi women are doing this in their bodies. And so the body is important, however it is gendered for them. Anything that's such a powerful the, like theory and contribution when we think about, as you're saying, Islamic feminism, Muslim societies, or any religious practices, like what does it mean for women to be in their bodies in these rituals and how are they relating to it? Like how do they have agency over what simply could be choosing to hold hands or not hold hands or positioning somewhere, right? Um, and I really appreciated being able to think about that when in reading your book, right? And so that was really fabulous. I think within these spaces, women can have agency, right? I mean, nothing is black and white in life. And, you know, certainly Islam and other religions around the world are full of, you know, political nuances and hierarchies and dogmas and, you know, everything that might suppress uh, women in a sense. But I think it's not all about that. Right. You know, if you have the choice you do have agency in it. You know, you do find satisfaction. And women were longing to go to Hadra. These women were saying, this is like my place. This is the place where once a week I can be myself. That's very powerful, right? If a ritual practice allows you to be yourself, then religious practice should be looking to different lens. I think healthcare practitioners mental health care practitioners, you know, uh, sociologists um, should be really looking into these ritual practice and say, well, what is this doing for women? Because this is part of their well-being. Right. Yeah. So religious is not just, you know, the place where I have a moral value that I strongly resonate with and I will live my life according to this moral value. I think within that moral value, there's a sense of inner satisfaction to some women in some parts of the world. So I think it's really important to say, right, because, you know, if we're going to go to places like Afghanistan or Iran, then it's a totally different story. But saying that, I spent six months in Iran when um, I was kind of finishing my PhD. And even though, you know, I had some conversations with Iranian women there, and even though in a country that you are suppressed they still find agency they were still extremely strong strong-minded you know so and we can tell by what is happening you know in our current days right so yeah i think there are spaces for women to portray their sense of self and definitely within sufism and hadra is a place where women can experience a sense of self Can you talk a little bit more about the components of Hadra for this specific community, for instance, um, and was there music, like, you know, for maybe our listeners who don't know too much, was there music involved? We're talking about that it's gender segregated, so these are women-only Hadra spaces. Um, does the Sufi teacher, like the sheikh, come or the sheikh's wife come? Like, what's kind yeah. of the setup? Okay, so I'll explain it to you more in terms of in South Africa, how it worked. 
in South Africa at the time, yeah, so this is like 2015 or 14, 13, uh, the Nahma Tariqa was divided into two groups. So there was two hadras. There was one performed, I think, on a Monday night and another one on a Wednesday night. I can't remember now, but um, I think it's pretty much like that. And I used to go to both. So people, the, um, the disciples that used to go to the Monday night were, you know, go to the Monday night and the ones that go to the Wednesday night go to the Wednesday night. In both places, it was performed a little bit different. So on the Monday night, the house had two separate rooms. So men and women uh, did not see each other. And I was really not allowed to go to the other room. So I could hear them. And I think I say that in the in the um, book where women sometimes say, and when we hear the men, we also get excited. So there was this sense of unison through the space whereby I don't have to be with a male body. I still feel the presence of the male body through the voice. And that keeps me going. So it goes beyond the gender. Listen, this is really important because it goes beyond gender. It's a sense of unison. And it doesn't matter if I'm in this space with women or if I'm in, uh, they are in that space with men because we're all here for the same thing. So that was interesting. In that hadra, there was no instruments. There was the um, husband and the wife, they would lead the hadra. So the husband would lead the hadra and the and the wife would lead the hadra in the women's room. And there was music, background music. On the, I think Wednesday, the Wednesday night was slightly different. It was kind of big, big, big room where men would be at the beginning of the room and women would be at the far end of the room. So people were in the same space, but they were not seeing each other and they were not doing hadra together, but they were in the same space far away from each other. And the music was in the middle, so there were musicians. And again, we was the male um, leader that used to run the hadra. Common to both practices were the kasidas, so the text was pretty much the same as far as I could remember. And comment was, um, I think, the kind of social behavior. You know, in the end, everybody has food. Um, everybody, um, in the Monday night, they would not have food together. They would have food in their separate rooms. But then in the end, you know, when people are coming out, everyone kind of like be together. Interesting, I remember I used to serve the men in the men room. So the women still take some food to the men's room. And that was like my opportunity to sneak in to see what's going on. <laughs> I always wanted to, I thought, oh my gosh, that's why no wonder they think I want to get married. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll take it, I'll take it. Because I always wanted to know what kind of dynamics were happening there. You know, how did they feel? I wanted to know how tired they were. I wanted to see what kind of conversations they were having. So that particular moment was really important to me. For my research. <laughs> that's really clever though. That's very like but, knowing the situation and taking advantage of it. That's like a good, good little move. Yeah. It's really, I was like, I always want to go there to give them food and to take the plates and always take my sweet time because I wanted to understand what was going on. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, like you said, when do you bend, you know, when do you bend the boundaries? Well, that was me bending because I really needed to access that kind of vibe. I just wanted to know the vibe, that's all. I was curious. So 
and then on the Wednesday night, people used to also have, you know, food together and talk. And it was kind of like at the beginning, it's almost like going to a party, really. Everybody's exciting at the beginning and everybody's like, hey, salam, salam, how are you? How's your daughter? How's everything? And then in the end, no one really wants to talk. You know, it's kind of like, and now bye-bye. And because there's kind of like sense of calmness and, you know, like restablishment. And that was common to all groups. That sense of like, okay, it's off now. It's, you know, so it's always kind of like, People didn't really want to talk too much afterwards. So you kind of have to assess. When I did Hadra, I don't want to talk either. And I think for me, it was kind of a process. I came with a dancer mindset. I need to learn the moves and I need to, <laughs> I need to learn the moves. Okay, up and down. And I have to breathe and then breathe in, breathe out. And, ah, ah, you know, and I had to like control your breath and do this and that. So, my first weeks of Hadra were purely technical. No, yeah. yeah. You know, the technique. Right. Right? Because right? yeah. when you learn how to swim, you're also like focusing on, swim, on you know, the strokes, right? right? So at the beginning was all about the technique of the movement for me. Once you start learning the technique, then you can add these layers of now I'm going to recite now I'm going to understand what I'm saying. Now that I got into the rhythm, I'm just going to let go and see what happens. Now I'm in it and I'm not even thinking of what I'm doing. That's when you're swimming, right? Yeah. It's amazing. It's funny because I'm actually um, taking swimming lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to learn that. Yeah, that's why, you know, yeah. I'm yeah, and we didn't. I didn't tell you, so you've just naturally picked up on this thing that I've been doing. And so oh. I, I swam in the deep end for the first time yesterday, but I was like panicked the whole time. And my teacher was like, "You could do it. You're okay." So as you're talking about like the technique, I'm totally like, "Yes, I'm slowly just learning how to do a full stroke and like really push through." And so oh. it's so super technical, but I hope I could get to a point where I could just free flow and let go. You know, you will, so, yeah. you will, you will absolutely because. <laughs> You know, those moments are the moments where you stop thinking, you obtain the technique, and then you just need to trust your body. Right. Just trust your body. Yeah. Trust that you're going to be able to do it naturally because bodies naturally move. Mm, so yeah. you will get it, right? Because that's what our bodies do. We are beings in movement. That's right. what we are. Yeah. So, I love that. Thank you. Thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> But it's funny because we were we're talking about this completely other thing, but your swimming analogy just totally hits me because yeah. I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm like in it right now. It makes total sense right now. Right. Um, but that's amazing. Um, is there I've taken up a lot of your time and you've joined us from Japan. So there's a huge time difference between us, which I'm so grateful and also mindful of. Is there anything else that you want to let our listeners know about the book that we haven't fully touched on? Uh, we haven't we kind of danced around different parts of the book and hopefully the listeners will pick it up and engage it but any um, points or anything that you want our listeners to be aware of or know about I think it depends what the reader wants from the book so let's say you know if the reader you know is a dancer or performer or you know a body practitioner I think it will be maybe more useful to read like you said chapter six and seven and you know the autoethnographic so the parts where you just literally go deep into the 
what the movement is and what does it feel and how can it be this kind of like somatic process, the body and mind process. But if you are a religious person, like, you know, religious person studies like you are, then I think it would be interesting maybe to read the historical part of the Nashma Bandi in South Africa. So you kind of like get a contextual of, oh, okay, so this is what they are and, you know, they, they progress and a little bit more into um, the, the world of dance within Sufism, you know, and all these like tensions between schools that some schools, you know, uh, allow the body to move and they think it's important part of the practice and others that resist that idea whereby, you know, the body really needs to be annihilated. So maybe from the religious practice, that would be interesting. That's, yeah. That's amazing. Um, I think it's, um, again, really fascinating research and I really appreciated your autoethnographic reflections and it's just, it was really lovely. And it's so, such a huge pleasure to talk to you. Um, what are you doing these days? Are you working on a new project? Um, uh, what are you doing in Japan? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting, right? From Sufism yeah. talking to turtles. Oh, is that what you're doing? That's so cool. Yeah, these days I'm interviewing turtles and sharks and sardines. No, I'm kidding. Oh, I thought you were serious. It's, I'm like, that is the coolest thing ever. Uh, I'm, I'm again working on well-being. So, you know, I, I think well-being for me is uh, maybe because of my car accident and all the trauma, trauma that came out of it. So I'm in Japan. And I am right now a visiting researcher at the Marine Climate Change Unit. So I'm actually working with marine scientists and with these, you know, really cool um, unit in Okinawa. So the Okinawa, the Institute of Science and Technology. Um, the unit is led by Professor Tim Ravasi. And Tim was great to me. He just, you know, opened his unit and said, what is it that you want to do with us? Yeah, yeah. And I said, I want to understand how climate change is perceived by uh, fishermen communities and how such things are influencing their well-being. Mm -hmm. So is climate change really influencing the well-being of coastal communities? What is changing? How is changing? Why is it important to speak? And, you know, what kind of contributions us anthropologists and marine scientists can do for these communities? So that's what I'm doing. And on my free time, I do free dive. And that's why I told you that I'm talking to turtles. <laughs> and yeah, uh, so so I think free diving is exactly like Hadra, to be honest. Really? Um, I mean, you're just there with no oxygen with your body into the depth. And I think you find God, you know, you find yourself, you find you were alive, right? Yeah, yeah. I really, I cannot distinct Hadra from other aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, it, it just goes beyond religion. Mm -hmm. That's me, like really, yeah. book number two, it sounds like, or the next project. Almost, yeah, almost. <laughs> yeah, I really would like to do something with um, how people connect to themselves through ritual practices, through their bodies. And I would like to use Sufism and maybe shamanism and, you know, other sort of like ritual practices where people connect their bodies to access something that is beyond their bodies. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Jamila, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I feel like I could talk to you forever. <laughs> 
I wish you were, yeah, it's just so cool. I'm really, yeah, I'm in awe, um, like really amazing work that you're doing, especially in terms of bringing together these different disciplines and then deep diving in Japan. <laughs> How cool. Um, I hope we have, uh, I hope I have the opportunity to cross paths with you in real life one day, but this has been really lovely and I'm so grateful that you were able to make time for us and to connect. I'm really excited that the listeners got to know your story more as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, you know, and thank you for yeah also having the time and you know finding people it must be always difficult and challenging and you know timetables and everything time zones so yeah thank you thanks for being interested (laughs) thank you no absolutely my pleasure thanks so much and that was my conversation with Jamila Rodriguez about her new book I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll join us again next time until then stay well and take good care